hello, and welcome to Things That Make You Go Woo. I'm your host, Emily Barnard, also known as Emily and Her Stars. I'm a medium, an astrologist, an Akashic Records reader, an artist, and an all-around just silly and curious gal. In this podcast, I'll be sharing the things and people I find fascinating, funny, and inspirational. Things that I hope will certainly make you go woo, too. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Things That Make You Go Woo. Today, I am excited to talk about a woman in history. It is February. It is Women in History Month. And I wanted to highlight someone that really has influenced my career and who also changed the landscape of astrology in the United States. And so today's episode, I'm going to talk about Evangeline Adams. Now, Evangeline Adams is pretty much known for two reasons. The first one is a trial that took place in 1914 in New York City, in which she was arrested for fortune-telling. And she combated that charge, and she won. (laughs) The second thing she's remembered for is that in the 1920s, she was interviewed in every single women's magazine across the nation. She ends the 20s with a radio program, which is broadcast across the nation. And so she was really a household name as well. Evangeline Adams was this towering figure in the early 19-teens and 20s of the United States of America. There's a famous quote by J.P. Morgan that states, millionaires don't use astrology, billionaires do. Now, as I've talked about before, astrology really falls from being taught in universities in the 1600s. To put into context the reasons why that happened, you'll have to study the Parliamentary Wars, the restoration of Charles II, and the setup of the Royal Society. The first thing the Royal Society did in their sweeping restoration was to debunk astrology because Charles I's father was beheaded. An astrologer by the name of William Lilly had written the first English language manual on astrology in 1647. Prior to that, they had all been really written in Latin and translated on your own. But here, this new manual in 1647 really rocketed and propelled him into popularity. And in 1649, Lily was asked about whether Charles I would be beheaded. Lily read the stars, created a chart, and answered affirmative. 11 days later, the king was dead. Now, which came first, his choices that led to the execution Or did revealing the prophecy create propaganda that influenced the decision to execute him? Either way, the Royal Society's first step was to abolish astrology and cut off any access to the press or publishing. The popularity of Lily's books and pamphlets leads it to being seen as dangerous. God is in charge, not the stars. Now, also during this time period, you have pilgrims leaving the heightened pressure of religious doctrine in search of religious freedoms, and with them, they bring astrology to America, mostly in the form of almanacs, much like our own old farmer's almanac, and it comes with physicians who have paired astrology and herbology 
It comes in books like the Book of Knowledge, which gave planetary placements and helped dictate when to plant crops. The Book of Fortune also moved from an almanac version into really a popular entertainment magazine of the 17 and 1800s. This is where people would look up their dreams for explanation, see what their lucky numbers were, and sometimes even look up their sun signs. In this way, you see, astrology stayed in the public view, but wasn't practiced. Wink, wink. It would have been removed from universities, but lived on in the popular press. Now, along here, astrology becomes associated with mysticism and even occultism. When it had the protection of the universities, some of the greatest astronomers of all time, like Galileo and Kepler, were astrologists themselves. So let's take a look at America in the mid-1800s. We have many, many versions of Christianity starting in the Northeast, and one of these is spiritualism. I'll do another episode about it someday, but interestingly, Neptune was discovered in 1846, and two years later, In 1848, we have the Fox sisters communicating with spirit through knocks on their table. And this is really the beginnings of spiritualism. Spiritualism boosts the feminist movement and also drove this incredible clash between we are all born of love and light and others saying, no, we're not all born this way. We have slaves and they aren't people. Women were finding their voices in spiritualism. They weren't silenced in the place of worship. And they even talked about how marriage could be akin to slavery in some circumstances. So, okay, I've set the background for our heroine on today's show, Evangeline Adams. She was born February 8th, 1868 to a conservative family in Jersey City, New Jersey. While she boasted being related to the early American president, John Adams, her genealogy shows that it's a little bit tricky. They do, in fact, share a common ancestor. He's just further up the tree than John. And she does have these roots, certainly in early America. Evangeline's father, George, ran a wholesale coal and foundry business along the Erie train line from Dunkirk, New York, to Jersey City, New Jersey, which is just across from Manhattan. He married Evangeline's mother, Harriet, in 1853, and together they had six children in total. Two passed away earlier, just after childbirth, but John, Charles, William, and Evangeline. Unfortunately, George passed away just 15 months after little Evangeline was born, and much of his money had been lost while he tried to promote the advantage of paper train wheels, which is another rabbit hole I could go down. But yes, it was a great idea, and people did do it. He just was really too early to it. People didn't think it was realistic. It actually became popular later with Pullman cars and sleeper cars. After George's passing, Harriet can't sustain and doesn't want to stay living in Jersey City. So she moves north with the children to be closer to her family in Andover, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. 
It was a conservative Christian town with a male-dominated seminary dedicated to training future ministers. Many single women, though, chose to live along in this town and participate in all of the intellectual life and community. It was a way for them to remain single and also still educate themselves. Evangeline grew up in Andover, and as her brothers moved away, she was eventually left to care for her mother. In her teen years, she fell seriously ill, and the family doctor, Mr. Lewis Whitting, one of the first homeopathic physicians in the country, treated her. She spent hours talking to him about plants, life, death, and even the world beyond. When she turned 18, she realized that taking care of her mother was going to fall on her hands alone, and she needed a way to make a living. So the two women, selling their home in Andover, moved to a suburb of Boston, where Evangeline was able to work for her uncle as a stenographer and a private secretary at his flour and grain store. It was here that her family introduced her to Mr. Lord. He was 30 years older than her, but she was encouraged to date, and eventually the two did become engaged. She had missed her debut into society when she was sick in bed and somewhat felt a lack of appeal to dating when there were so many other things to do and to learn about. So she started attending lectures and participating in the lively intellectual conversations that was a favorite pastime of the area. One of her favorite faculty members from the Andover Theological Seminary was caught up in a political and religious fever when he and his colleagues published some pretty progressive papers. You see, when they went to work for the seminary, they had agreed to follow an explicit Christian creed of the Trinitarian Congregationalists. And when Darwin published his theory of evolution in 1859, it was literally ignored at Andover. The board brought up her favorite teacher, Dr. Smith, as well as four others on charges, and the entire thing went to trial in Boston. Evangeline was heartbroken when the man that she knew to be so good and so kind was still being damned for it, and it really drastically changed her perception of religion. While she was in Boston, she was introduced to Mr. Smith, the president of the Massachusetts Homeopathic Society. Now, Dr. Smith studied Sanskrit, Eastern religions, and even used astrology as a diagnostic tool for his patients. When he cast Evangeline's astrology chart, it was as if a doorway had suddenly opened for her. She states in her autobiography, I suppose I experienced during this first interview with Dr. Smith, the same excitement which so many of my own callers and correspondents tell me they get when they have their first realization of the power of astrology. I remember how amazed I was to see my whole life, past and present, spread out on the table between us. Now, Dr. Smith told her that not only was she a born astrologer, but that she should take up the study of the science. One final question she asked Dr. Smith, was if Mr. Lord, her engaged, was really a good marriage. And in fact, he said it was not a good match. And she should, against all societal norms of the time, call off the engagement. Suddenly, Evangeline was deep into studying astrology and casting charts for Mr. Smith's patients in her free time. 
Her new studies and the trial of one of her mentors led her to an entirely new belief system. And she would later say, I am not disdainful of conventional religion, but I am impatient with some of its camp followers. Especially difficult is it for me to maintain my own tolerance in the presence of people who attribute to God the petty attributes which they themselves possess. No such inverted egoism would be possible if they studied the teachings of astrology. The first thing they would learn is how small they are in comparison to the universe. I know it wasn't until astrology that I found any basic relation between myself and the universe. And from that moment on, I found not only contentment, but inspiration. Ugh, I love that so much. Now, Dr. Smith didn't have time to keep up tutoring Evangeline. He had a busy practice. He had all sorts of things going on. So he referred her to one of the most prominent practicing astrologers in Boston at the time, a Ms. Catherine Thompson. Now, Catherine was born in England, educated at Cambridge, and she was 10 years older than Evangeline. And when they met in 1888, Catherine was already running a pretty successful business, serving the public and not really patients. It's here that Evangeline learned so much of her knowledge, not only on how to run a business, but how to deal with clients, how to price her services, and really how to apply astrology to real life. Like, was this going to be a happy marriage? What kind of career would be best? If investments were advised now, later, or possibly never. And as Evangeline's talent grew, the friction between the ladies grew as well, and they eventually parted ways. In all of my research, I don't think this split was amicable because Evangeline never mentions Catherine in any of her books. But she did use some of the advertising wording that Catherine used, such as to popularize astrology in America. I don't know. I think the ladies were a little bit competitive with one another. After attending the World's Fair in Chicago in 1893, Evangeline met up with a character by the name of Kiro, the palmist extraordinaire. He was very bohemian, and she began to study with him. Palmistry now has an even more troubled history than astrology. It's always been linked to fortune tellers and vagrants. And while astrology could point the reputations of its renowned believers to like Ptolemy and Francis Bacon and Kepler, Kiro tried to point to Aristotle and Pliny the Elder and Pericles. (laughs) He believed, though, that like astrology, palmistry could reveal character, health, and disease, potential, and even the timing of future events. I just want to insert here that if you don't follow Handful of Stars on Instagram or social media, I highly recommend it. She's an incredible modern day palmist. Side note. By now, Evangeline's mother Harriet was suffering from dementia. And really, at this point, we can probably assume there was some pretty heavy Alzheimer's in there too, based on her descriptions. She returned home and really threw herself into her studies and began doing readings for the public in Andover. She later said that her customers would come really with their hats pulled low or their scarves covering up their heads so that they wouldn't be recognized. But she was doing well and she even had business cards printed up. 
Three years later, in June of 1896, Evangeline's mother Harriet passed away, and while this probably posed a great deal of sadness, it also offered some relief to Evangeline, and it gave her the opportunity to move to a newer, more exciting part of Boston. Here she was surrounded by artists and thinkers of her day. There was very little competition for astrology readings, and she was known to be quite sincere, to show genuine interest in the lives of her clients, and to just enjoy her work. Her office hours were 11 to 3 or by appointment, and in 1897, she's listed in the Boston City Directory as an astrologer. Using astrology to her own benefit, Evangeline noticed that March of 1899 was going to be excellent for her career and astrological work. At this point, New York City was the city in her sights. It was six times larger than Boston and on the cutting edge of music, art, and theater, not to mention the new money and upper class who were all way more receptive of women who lacked the sort of social pedigree that once was so deemed integral into society. Taking her secretary with, Evangeline traveled to New York and selected the very prestigious Fifth Avenue Hotel for their stay. After checking in, she mentioned her plans to be offering astrology readings, and to the horror of the hotel owner, she was flatly refused and was banned from offering any occult services on the premises. Her biography shares a slightly different version of the following events, so I'll kind of weave these two stories here together. After promptly exiting the hotel, Evangeline states that she carried her luggage for several blocks herself to the Windsor Hotel. It's not likely that that happened because the Windsor was like a solid 30-minute walk uptown and she would have had trunks and all sorts of things. (laughs) It's really more likely that she and her secretary stayed at the Fifth Avenue Hotel for a couple of nights while she tried to figure out what to do. In another interview, she states that a friend gave her a recommendation to a Mr. Leland of the Windsor Hotel. The ladies made their way to the Windsor Hotel and discovered that it was even fancier than the Fifth Avenue, and that Mr. Leland, unlike the previous proprietor, was thrilled to have an astrologist there. He set her up in a first-floor room and immediately asked for a reading right after dinner, stating that he wanted to be her mascot. That evening, as she proceeded with his horoscope, she saw that there was evidence of impending danger. He had, in fact, already survived two fires at other hotels, and it looked like he was due for a third very soon. Mr. Leland left that night, though, excited to have her and, in fact, sent more people to her that very evening for readings. The next morning, he saw her, and he was in an excellent mood. That day, though, was St. Patrick's Day. 1899, and people were gathered outside that day to watch the parade. Upstairs on the second floor, a man in the window attempted to extinguish a match and instead managed to catch the curtains on fire, and that fire moved so quickly. People were trapped on the upper floors. As they tried to escape, some fell from the ropes because it burned their hands. Others jumped to avoid being burned alive. It was horrific. 
There were members of the fire crews in the parade that stopped in their all their regalia to help fight the battle of the fire, but it was too hot and moved too quickly. It's estimated that 90 people died that night, including Mr. Leland's wife and daughter. He was distraught and in fact died himself just three weeks later when his appendix burst. Evangeline, though, her prediction traveled straight from Mr. Leland's lips to the newspaper journalists, and she was an overnight sensation. She moved her practice to the Continental Hotel, and business started booming. By 1905, she is well-established in New York. She has an office in Carnegie Hall. She's renting two rooms on the fourth floor. Her advertisement in the 1905 New York City directory lists her simply as palmist. However, as the years go by, she called herself all sorts of various versions of palmist, astrologist, and palmist, astrologist alone. (laughs) In the spring of 1910, Haley's Comet was making the world a lot more anxious. For eons, astrologists had regarded comets as predictors of disaster. Mark Twain joked that he'd come in with Halley's Comet the last time and he'd leave with it this time, and funny enough, he actually did. Adding to all of this comet fever was a recent scientific discovery that revealed that comets' tails included a cyanogen gas, or a close relative to cyanide. And since the Earth would pass through the outer part of Halley's tail, it was suggested that people could die. Anti-comet pills and gas masks were sold. Religious leaders suggested preparing for the end of the world. And some even prepared for earthquakes. However, on May 19th, the Earth sailed quietly through Halley's tail. The frenzy, though, really led investigators to crack down on disorderly persons. As Section 889 of the New York Criminal Code procedure characterized acrobatic performers, circus writers, men who desert their wives, and people who pretend to tell fortunes were all categorized as disorderly. Funny enough, circuses were in their heyday, when the, and this law doesn't seem to be enforced, but needless to say there were sweeping changes. Evangeline missed the first wave, but another wave came in 1911 when a police commissioner ordered an investigation of fortune tellers and soothsayers in New York City, and many were rounded up and arrested. A woman who was working undercover hired Evangeline for a reading, and after that, she was arrested. From jail, Evangeline made some contacts to some of her high-profile clients in order to help get her out of this sticky situation. Thankfully, her reputation helped her escape a six-month prison sentence, and she was let go. Who were these high-profile clients? Well, there is documentation of John P. Morgan, the Duchess of Manchester, Lord Chief Justice Palace of Ireland, Governor Douglas of Massachusetts, John P. Dryden, the founder of Prudential Life, Broadway and stage actors like Lillian Russell, Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, 
Interesting, Mary actually once changed travel plans when Evangeline warned her against a plane trip. Gloria Vanderbilt and her sister Thelma, even Florence Harding, who was President Warren Harding's wife. This is an excerpt from Evangeline's autobiography where she talks about the first time she met Mr. J.P. Morgan. I do not know about the late J.P. Morgan's belief in astrology because, well, because I taught it to him. I read his horoscope many times and furnished him during the last years of his life in a regular service, explaining the changing position of the planets and their profitable effect on politics, business, and the stock market. No further proof of his interest in the science is required beyond the fact that he renewed this service from year to year. The first time he came to my studio, his attitude was frankly one of curiosity tinged with suspicion. I had a heavy Chinese screen in one corner of my studio, and I remember how Mr. Morgan pulled his huge frame out of this chair and looked curiously behind the screen before beginning the interview. But that attitude melted away at the first meeting, and in his last years, he asked me from Egypt to join him and his party on the Orient, where he had gone on his famous yacht, the Corsair. His idea was to spend several months in a scientific investigation of the occult in those parts of the world where its practice reaches back into prehistoric times. I declined the invitation, not because I didn't appreciate the opportunity, but because I preferred to pursue my own investigations. In 1914, the undercover officer who had testified against Evangeline in her prior case was now a detective, and she again brought charges against her. In later versions of Evangeline's story, she states that she was ready to fight the legal system and once and for all make astrology legal in New York. Another version of the story is that she was in fact distraught and asked influential clients to try and get the case squashed. Knowing that her stars were more favorable in December, she asked for more time to build her case, and it was moved from May to December. The case caught national attention. Detective Adele Prees testified for the prosecution. She accused Adams of making many predictions, such as she'd soon have a violent love affair, that her eldest daughter would marry the first man she became engaged to and would make a far better marriage than the second younger daughter. Most extreme, though, were the predictions for her son, that he would die as a result of an accident or very suddenly. When Evangeline was finally allowed to take the stand, she explained that she did not make fatalistic declarations, but rather shared established information about the placement of the planets. The following is a transcript from that trial. Judge. In speaking of the son, the prosecution asserts you said, your son will be very successful. He makes friends very easily. He should be careful about his companions as he is apt to be influenced by them. He should guard against dissipation. How did you say that about the son, that he will be successful? Evangeline. Not as it is put there. She further states that I said he would be killed. If I had said that, why would I have cautioned her as I did? I know certain planets were in certain aspects, which indicated danger of an accidental death, and that because of that, I advised him not to work where there was high voltage. 
I did tell her he had ability along electrical lines, but that he ought not work in high voltage because of the aspect of his horoscope, which indicated danger of accidents and even accidental death. I said it just that way. (laughs) In the end, the judge contended that Evangeline did not pretend to foretell any event, that all that occurred was an attempt on her part to explain the position of the planets and read their indications. He even said, The defendant raises astrology to the dignity of an exact science, one of vibration, and she claims that all the planets represent different forces in the universe. This was exciting, and Evangeline really celebrated. The law in New York wasn't necessarily changed, but a precedent had been set that really said that not all people brought in on these charges would be automatically found guilty, and it would need to really proceed on a case-by-case basis. She also changed her own personal perceptions. Astrology appeared more scientific, and she could cite historical records going back thousands of years. But there was no authoritative text on palmistry except for the one her teacher, Cairo, had written. And he was kind of regarded as a showman, a circus man. From the trial forward, she never again advertised herself as a palm reader. Evangeline benefited greatly from all of this press. And in the 1920s, she's literally in every single women's magazine across the nation. In early 1921, a client asks Evangeline's advice on a business deal. She reads his chart, and as the story goes, is immediately attracted to his stars and asks to meet him. Two months later, as he's leaving New York to go back to Boston, he suddenly has an urge to see the lady who had been attracted to his chart. He calls her up, and she said she had 20 minutes before her next client, but if he came up right away, she would see him for a few minutes. He gave up his train ticket to Boston, went to see her, and two years later, they were married. George was his name, and he was 23 years younger than her. But she told a paper, All my life I've known that a man with this particular pattern of the stars at birth would come into my life someday. (laughs) He rented an office across the hall from her and eventually really takes over running all of her PR. He turns her business into an astrology machine. One of the first things Evangeline did was hire her niece and many other part-time women to cast horoscopes for a mail-order business. Eventually, she had six suites on the 10th floor of Carnegie Hall, going from dozens of employees up to as many as 44. I've even seen different accounts where that was closer to 100. She doubled her prices for readings, charging $20 for a half hour and a personal interview. Seeing up to 10 people a day, she did eventually cut that number back to 25 a week to conserve her energy, and she wanted to write more books. She was earning between $500 and $1,000 a week when the median American income was around $2,000 a year. She was grossing closer to $50,000, which made her quite wealthy. Those with less cash or who lived in other parts of the country could send away for a written horoscope by mail. They cost about $10 and contained 16 to 20 pages. 
she also developed a planetary report for it each year, and it proved to be quite popular for business people. The report was based on current transits of the planets, calculated from the date and year, and really applied to everyone. It sold for $20 and was a super big moneymaker for her. She reserved her mornings for meetings with staff, planning the day, and attending a correspondence, which was a task. One magazine article had alone drawn 11,700 letters in just a few days. Requests for new orders were accompanied by follow-up notes, thank yous, and other letters sharing exactly how her forecast had come to pass. Over the years, Evangeline had many business-centered customers, and she really and later users refused to give specific information on particular stocks or to predict the daily fluctuations in the market. She felt this was just impossible and instead relied on reading the larger swings and forecasting the direction of the cycles and where they would be heading. One of her most gratifying tasks later in life was her work over several years for an adoption agency where she would read the baby's horoscopes and advise the best type of home for them, even sometimes comparing them with the charts of prospective parents. The best record we have of an Evangeline Adams reading comes from the educator and mythologist Joseph Campbell. On Tuesday, November 10th, 1925, at the age of 21, Campbell visited Evangeline and immediately wrote about his experience in his journal. This rules out the kind of creative remembering that many have contributed to other reports from her. Campbell apparently had a general reading, but also asked Evangeline about a current relationship. His journal notes are preserved in the book, A Fire in the Mind. Here's what he wrote. She told me my ruling planet was Venus, that I was either an Episcopalian or a Roman Catholic, that I loved beauty and art, that I'd make a good actor, journalist, or playwright, that I'd have to cast about probably until 1927 before finding my life work, that I should not worry about my vocation, but try to get the most out of the present. Rosalie, she said, is far more practical than I, and she would judge a man's success in terms of his ability to support a happy family. She will probably not continue at law, and if she does continue, she will probably take it very literally. She and I are tremendously attracted to each other physically because her planet Venus and my Mars are almost coincident. But other inclinations are totally different directions. If we were to marry, we should, after the third year, be unhappy, for the physical attraction would have waned, and we should have left almost nothing in common." We are at a crossroads going two different ways. It would be suicide for either to turn aside into the way of the other. Rosalie's will is a great deal stronger than mine, and I would probably be the one to forfeit individuality and full expression for the two plus two equals four of life, of being a practical husband. She told me that I am tending away from family traditions, that I am inclined toward mysticism, that I could have been a priest but that I would have been more uncomfortable under the orthodox restrictions. Evangeline is candid and kind of authoritative in her assessment of Campbell's relationship, definitely evaluating it and advising him 
to at least delay the marriage, which she did with so many other clients. Her interpretations are within the letter of the law, and Joseph Campbell consistently reports the words such as probably or inclinations, should, tending, rather than absolutes. She had learned her lesson after the trial. Joseph Campbell's biographers agreed that Evangeline's descriptions of him and his girlfriend, as well as Evangeline's forecast for the subsequent events, proved true, and that Campbell was somewhat shell-shocked by the experience. He did, though, return to Evangeline a few years later and eventually got a better verdict on his relationship with his future wife, Jean. He remembered that Evangeline had told him in 1927 that a later period in his life would be one of consolidating his impulses and beginning to find his own path. And in fact, in 1934, he was offered a faculty position at the Sarah Lawrence College in Bronxville. He accepted the position and remained at that college for nearly 40 years. Evangeline had studied many philosophies and belief systems. She had learned morality, discipline, and even faith from her Congregationalist background, and tolerance from her Unitarianism. Her studies with the Orient pointed toward the value of self-sufficiency and strength, as well as understanding cycles of experience. Spiritualism stressed the immortality of the soul, and she really took a little bit from each of these doctrines and believed that astrology superseded all worldly religions. There were forces larger than us and universal principles, and astrology transcended them all. It encompassed the whole cosmos, not any one creed. It represented the ultimate truth. The horoscope indicated tendencies rather than deeds. A person could be either constructive or destructive. It was up to them to develop their virtues and avoid negative inclinations on their own. As she once said, the moment is ours to do with it, not always what we will, but what we should. In November of 1926, Evangeline Adams' autobiography, The Bowl of Heaven, was released to world-renowned success. In fact, eight printings in four years. Autobiographies in general did well in the 1920s, but hers did especially well. It's a combination of the cases in which she had forecast through the years, as well as a bit of her life story. A little unusual for a true autobiography, and she certainly loved to embellish some of the facts. Another book a short time later, titled Your Place in the Sun, was designed for the general public. It introduced the reader to astrology in general and was a way for them to individually find their sun signs and other placements. It wasn't the book she necessarily dreamed of writing, but it was a good start. All of these efforts were really beginning something of a renaissance for astrology in America. Two American special interest groups were created for astrologers, the Astrologers Guild, founded in 1927, and the American Federation of Astrologers in 1928. In 1927, daily newspapers were regularly featuring astrological advice. While today's typical sun sign horoscope forecast hadn't quite been born, articles 
at that point might have been more likely to include a lucky hours column or something along the lines of best possible wedding dates. Beginning in late 1930, Evangeline syndicated a weekly Sunday feature on the characteristics of the zodiac signs, along with some standardized forecasts in the newspapers like the Boston Herald, Detroit Times, Richmond Times, Dispatch, Charlotte Observer, and others. These features provided genuine astrological information for the masses, and they were the predecessors to our modern-day weekly and monthly horoscopes. As the years went on, Evangeline made fewer public forecasts, but when she had an important prediction, such as her prediction for the involvement in World War II, she repeated it often. Her warning for the financial panic began in 1927, with influences more pronounced in 28 and 29, and she reiterated it over and over again to so many. In 1928, her forecast had still not come true. The stock market continued upward with only two breaks in its constantly rising prices. Volume was incredible with a new record set for numbers of stocks traded. But in the midst of all of this prosperity, Evangeline stuck to her dire forecast and continued to caution investors. In a September 1928 issue of a well-known magazine, she said, It therefore behooves the officers of financial institutions and captains of industry to display great wisdom if we hope to avert the disaster. Even the individual should make special effort to live within his means and try to cooperate with the conditions around him. Funny enough, this was published in the midst of a period of easy money. But Evangeline had developed a reputation on Wall Street by this time, and some investors heeded her advice. Her experience with big names like Seymour Cromwell, recent president of the New York Stock Exchange, broker Jacob Stout, J.P. Morgan, industrials Thomas Lawson, Fritz Heinz, Charles Schwab, and James J. Hill, really all of them listened to her in some way or another. Then, on Wednesday, October 23rd, prices plummeted, creating near panic on the New York Stock Exchange, Black Thursday. Of course, prices continued to fluctuate greatly, and in a letter to her niece, she wrote that it would be a challenging Christmas for many. In an interview with the New York Telegram in February of 1930, there's a headline that states, Beware of market, for hostile Uranus is in control, noted astrologist warns. In the 1930s, Evangeline was really at the height of her popularity, and she was referred to as America's most famous astrologer. At 62, she had accomplished all she had really set out to do. She had a tremendous list of satisfied clients. She earned an excellent living. She had truly made America astrology conscious. Syndicated astrology columns were published in newspapers across the country with horoscopes of celebrities and their newborns regularly appearing in the Sunday papers. Due to Evangeline's efforts, the revival of astrology was at least 10 years old at this point and really gaining momentum. With the publication of her next book approaching, it was easy for her husband to recycle earlier stories to keep the Evangeline legends alive. 
George spent much time on all of the phones crowded around his desk and was constantly in touch with the Woman's Home Companion, the Boston Herald, and so many other publications. In fact, he booked Evangeline on a lecture tour and finally even landed her a three-month contract to appear on radio. Radio was the most exciting thing to happen since the invention of the telephone. It was entering homes throughout America at an ever-increasing rate and really helped to unite this country during the difficult time of the Depression. By the 1930s, they estimate that at least 40% of all American families had a radio. And primetime shows were beginning to get sponsors with snappy little ad campaigns. Originally, the airwaves were considered public interest and commercial advertisers realized that if they could sponsor a show, it gave them an extra advantage. In 1926, Evangeline began broadcasting her show, Your Stars, on New York City's local WABC station. The producers must have had high hopes for the program because they placed Evangeline squarely in primetime, the most popular evening listening period, just 15 minutes after Amos and Andy concluded. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday evening from 7.30 to 7.45, Evangeline would tell anecdotes of her celebrity clients, repeat her successful predictions, and advise about the next day. Her clear voice and sure and steady speech were a natural for radio work. Her show was sponsored by Four Hands Toothpaste, and it seems now like an unusual pairing. But Amos and Andy was sponsored by Pepsodent, so it was clearly all about product placement. Soon, Evangeline's show was broadcasting on a CBS network of about 10 stations in the East, By September, it was reported that no broadcast in history had won so large a volume of fan mail. The 15-minute syndicated show had attracted such attention that it would be extended to reach some 38 stations across the country. Radio's rage was staggering, and other media outlets like newspapers and magazines couldn't even compete. At this point, she begins receiving an average of 4,000 letters a day. She has 96 girls working for her in Carnegie Hall. The radio had the potential to reach approximately 50 million listeners at a time, 40% of the population. It was even reported that Evangeline had the heaviest fan mail of any program in 1931, saying that she took the country by storm. Astrologers were still difficult to find, and their fees were generally high for most people, particularly in the Depression years. A free reading from America's foremost astrologer provided some hope to the many thousands across the U.S. who listened to your stars. Evangeline's health had been failing now for several years, and though she traveled overseas to seek treatment in mineral baths and from homeopathic doctors, she still continued to suffer from high blood pressure and arteriosclerosis. Yet, she continued to work on as the Depression brought many people seeking advice and guidance. On Friday, November 4th, 1932, she set out for a Broadway show, The Late Christopher Bean. It was outside of Boston, and after she returned home, she took a long, hot bath. Evangeline suddenly felt faint and lost consciousness. Her doctor diagnosed the condition as a mild stroke and ordered complete rest. 
Evangeline, though, knew she was dying. And at some point over the next few days, she wrote a short note requesting simple services at the Church of the Transfiguration, where she and George had been married just 10 years before. On November the 8th, Evangeline suffered a second, more massive stroke. Her doctor pronounced her dead of a cerebral hemorrhage at 4 p.m. in the afternoon. At 64, Evangeline Adams had secured her place as America's top leading astrologist. She had changed the future of astrology. Carol Ryder, whom Evangeline advised to study astrology at just 14 years old, himself became a popular astrologist based in Hollywood. His clients included Ronald and Nancy Reagan, Marlene Dietrich, Grace Kelly. Other students of Evangeline's included Iris Farrell and Catherine Q. Spencer Young went on to write books and columns about astrology. She really changed the entire foundation. Ultimately, though, Evangeline Adams was a woman with a mission to legitimize astrology. And if she didn't complete in doing that, then she did at the very least make the American public more aware of astrology and what it could do for them. This is why I love her story so much. I think she is one of the first women in the country to set out on a path that was considered dangerous and occult and make it legitimate. She knew that the information she was providing was accurate. And that's why I wanted to highlight her this February for National Women's History Month. I hope you've enjoyed this story. There's so much more information out there about her and pieces of her story that I didn't have time to put into this episode. But her legacy is something that I will always admire. Now, her husband, uh, George, wasn't necessarily the most stand-up character. I do think he took advantage of her in some ways and really tried for a long time to make his own living off of the notes and things that she had left behind, but he didn't understand astrology in the same way she did. I'll send you out of today's episode with a quote that Evangeline concluded her own memoir with. I am persuaded by my own mature happiness that my life has been what the stars decreed that it should be, a life of service to others. There is no limitation to the realm of astrology, but man's knowledge of that realm has definite boundaries. And it is my ambition, my one absorbing purpose, to push those boundaries into the infinite until they approach as near as it is possible for humanity to come to God. Thank you all for listening, and I will see you on the next episode. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Things That Make You Go Woo. You can help me out by leaving a positive rating and a review wherever you downloaded this episode. Be sure and follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Emily and Her Stars. You can also reach out via email anytime, emilyandherstars at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time on Things That Make You Go Woo.